Nirvana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, it's all about you, the listeners, and your questions. Cover it all, from team budgets to restarts to even Gray Galding. Plus, our Bristol preview. I'll give you a hint. It has something to do about the preferred restart lane. And we'll have our latest Positive Regression Scouting Network submission. But first, it's episode 30 of Positive Regression. This, David, is the Jeff Green edition. Let's go back to the early 2000s. The number 30 car. It wasn't a long run. It wasn't a very productive run. But damn it, David, it was a memorable paint scheme. Jeff Green drove the 30 car for Richard Childress Racing, sponsored by America Online. AOL for people of our age, if you're between the ages of, say, 33 and 43, I guess. I'm just throwing that out there. America Online was everything. It is how you got on the Internet back in the day. You had a dial-up modem. If your parents were rich, you had a second phone line, uh, and so you didn't have to get interrupted. My parents did not have that, so anytime you picked up the phone, you got booted offline. But if you wanted to go on the World Wide Web, you had America Online. And what I'm getting at, David, at this point in time, this was a significant sponsor on a very relevant, significant team, and it just didn't produce much. I'm. I, I, you just took me aback by that. I'm quickly trying to backtrack and think. Did I know anybody that had two phone lines? I don't. <laughs> the rich kids. I don't, I don't think I befriended very many rich people. I think I did it wrong. It, it doesn't matter. But I want to talk about that AOL car because, it, in retrospect, that was a huge deal. Just a, a fantastic get for for Richard Childress Racing for NASCAR and. If we can think back about what that ride was supposed to be and what it was supposed to represent, it was a couple of things. It represented Richard Childress Racing transitioning from the house that Dale Earnhardt built into a super team. It was going to be the third RCR car after the three and the 31. And when they originally announced the AOL deal, the selected driver was a young Californian named Kevin Harvick. And then uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr. passed away. Kevin Harvick was quickly shuffled into uh, what was the three car, then became the 29 car. And that's how Jeff Green became the driver of the 30. This ride was supposed to be an iconic memorable for for victorious reasons and um it just didn't pan out that way but the car was gorgeous we talked about blue and yellow in the spam uh episode number nine in regards to lake speed but this car had it it looked sharp but oh the performance was not there and it is uh the nexus point for one of the weirdest moments in NASCAR history when in 2002, the trade. Yeah, a what? A, in NASCAR, a trade? Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and and listen, when I say this, no, it's not an official trade. It did not have to go through uh, the NASCAR front office for approval. It was just a convenient swapping of one another's problems between Richard Childress Racing and Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Jeff Green, 
uh, moved from the RCR 30 to the DEI number one replaced by Steve Park. And that year, Jeff Green through that initial slate of races, uh, it was around Coca-Cola 600 time when the, the, uh, the swap occurred, but he had a negative peer, a 26.3 place average finish and ranked 32nd in points in an RCR car, uh, at the time of his dismissal. On the flip side, Steve Park had a 26.5 place average finish for DEI, a horrid peer himself. Uh, they swapped rides. Neither of them earned a positive production rating in their new cars. And later in that season, Jeff Green would be traded again to the 43 car, Richard Petty Motorsports, for John Andretti. I don't know that it was uh, anything beyond underwhelming, but both drivers did uh, stay with those organizations for a little bit longer than half a season. But uh, interesting, quirky little tidbit in NASCAR history that, you know, we, we now remember the 30 car for something much different than what it was intended for. Yeah. Hey, AOL, America Online. What, what a, that has meant a lot to probably to both of our lives, right? I mean, we're, we're podcasting on the internet right now and our internet lives started with America Online. And, and for whatever reason, we will always remember that car. Yeah. And I'll speak to, um, to Jeff Green because he was more than just a footnote. He was a 16 time race winner in, uh, what is now the NASCAR Xfinity series. 15 of those wins occurred between the ages of 36 and 39. Bing, and bing, he bing. won, won a championship, uh, during that time. He drove a beautiful Xfinity series car. Do you remember the paint scheme? Do you, do you, do you think you uh, know what I'm talking about? Nestle's quick. Yes, that's it. Oh, just the, I don't think we've ever seen that kind of yellow on a race car, but yeah, it looked like the, the Nestle quick can that you see at the grocery store. Um, gorgeous car. And, uh, and right now still racing 56 years old ranks 19th in Xfinity series peer Allen. And that is with start and park finishes included, which are most of his finishes. He can still get after it. Uh, he picks and chooses, obviously, based on what, uh, races are sponsored. He's, Still has the, uh, the savvy, uh, though probably not as competitive as he was during his, uh, prime, which was not too bad for, uh, an Xfinity series, uh, regular. No, and that is a testament to his talent, you know, these last few years, because, you know, we talk about back markers or back marker drivers or equipment a lot, but not all drivers, as we try to tell you, are created equal. And when you have a situation where you have to get it on speed per a qualifying lap, there is a reason Jeff Green has been employed. All this time, because if it comes down to one lap, he seems to be able to get it done and get the car in the field, which is the mission for some of these teams. And that is the only mission. That is the victory. That is the race win, just simply getting in the field. And that's why you get Jeff Green to do it for you. Oh, for sure. And there have been veterans in the past where I've heard that, oh, so-and-so can get the job done. And you'll say, really? He's never done any kind of job. That doesn't make any sense. But I've never thought that about Jeff Green. He's a consummate professional. And look, when he was able and we had the um, the equipment on Saturdays in the Xfinity series, he was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, part of that Owensboro, Kentucky uh, green gang. Very enjoyable. Yes, I watched his brother Mark win at the uh, bullring over at Charlotte Motor Speedway recently for the summer shootout. And his brother David is one of the NASCAR inspectors who you can see every week in the garage. So great start to episode 30 of Positive Regression. Uh, good memories of an early 2000s paint scheme. Let's get it started, though. This episode really is all about listener questions, David. We have great, smart listeners 
people who are uh, not afraid to ask us smart, intelligent questions when we asked for them, and we received some good ones. So let's just start it off. We uh, put the bat signal out, as you did, David. That was really cool. You put a literal bat signal out on uh, Twitter, and we got some great responses. So let's start. From Racer Page, uh, they ask, We all know teams, even powerhouses, have to decide where and how to spend their budget, often by track type. Who spends more or less where, and what do the numbers tell us about how successful or unsuccessful they are as a result? This is a really interesting question, David, because I never never put too much thought into it in terms of where the dollars go per track or per resource. Uh, you could say every track or every race is the same, right? They all pay the same amount of points. Each one is significant if you win it. But let's be honest, mile and a half tracks are the bread and butter of NASCAR. So do more resources go toward those? This should be an interesting question. To be sure, we're never going to receive a peek into the accounting ledgers uh, for these teams. But in terms of where teams focus, you're right. Uh, We can make pretty decent guesses based on speed at certain track types. But it stands to reason that the mile-and-a-half tracks, which are the most prevalent in NASCAR, are often the priority. But just looking at speed, Chip Ganassi Racing's two cars rank fifth and sixth in speed on the 1.5-mile tracks. Alan, we've talked on past episodes about Kyle Larson's year last year, how slow they were on short tracks. In hindsight, you can see what they were attempting to do. They were trying to nail down what their car could do on the mile and a half. After all, that was the track type that crowned our series champion, at least through this year. Richard Childress Racing's two cars rank 13th and 15th on the two-mile tracks. So that's an interesting emphasis. If you consider maybe they don't have as uh, as much firepower on the mile and a half tracks, they can't compete with the Stuart Haas and JGRs of the world, uh, so they turn their attention elsewhere. Hendrick Motorsports ranks first, second, third, and 17th on the drafting tracks. Uh, we've always talked about their appearance on pole day for the Daytona 500 that never uh, ceases to amaze. And I, I wrote about this a few weeks ago for The Athletic, but the notion that Chevrolet is back or even improved is somewhat flawed because the likes of JGR and Stuart Haas and Team Penske are so resource rich that they don't have to pick and choose. They might not prioritize two-mile tracks, which have no representation in the playoffs, but they're so good in general that when they get to Pocono or Michigan or Fontana, the cream just rises to the top. I think that's probably the best way to ascertain how some of these teams are approaching the different tracks. Uh, and again, we'll just never know what they're, what they're spending, but you can, you can kind of feel it out. If it's just a truly dominant, um, well-established team, uh, there's not there's not a whole lot of choosing that has to be done. They're going to be good everywhere, uh, so they'll prioritize the tracks that are most important. And the smaller teams are going to make bids uh, bids elsewhere in advance of a win or just a you know shock upset to get into the playoffs. Yeah, and I like how you put it. I mean, we'll never know the full story in terms of the budget or the resource directory, but the the results certainly tell a story. Like you say with Chip Ganassi, that thing you would think something we can infer 
from that. I think back to when, say, maybe an A.J. Allmendinger was on JTG Doherty. You would, wouldn't you just have to think that they put a lot of resources into that Watkins Glen race, right? Maybe more simulator time or just more research, engineering, what have you, into putting their best bullet at maybe their best shot at winning. I mean, that, that's not a, a crazy notion to think of. So without knowing the budget, I, I think you can kind of assume you have to play to your strengths, especially, as you said, if you're one of the smaller teams. Uh, Marcus Ambrose, certainly. I think that yeah. was their MO for the entire season is their season was built around Sonoma and Watkins Glen. Next up from William Soquet. Is there any noticeable difference between drivers who have stock car experience, say K&N or ARCA, before going to a national series and those that don't, say super late models or sprints, dirt stuff, in terms of driving style, ability to close races? So is there any noticeable difference from those who climb the ladder, David, on pavement, really in stock cars, or those that do it in um, on dirt coming up that way uh, in their driving styles, stats, success, if you will? Uh, good overall question. Do we see a difference in how you come up? I'm going to take some liberties in answering this question because of the way the NASCAR approval process is structured. A driver pretty much has to go through ARCA just because that's the only series that offers certain tracks outside the NASCAR national level. So everyone is going to funnel through a stock car series anyway. But for drivers that came up through pavement late models versus dirt sprint cars or anything else really there isn't a statistical difference i've i've looked uh, there's just it's it's not there stylistically i don't see any real difference either it's common to hear how drivers with a dirt racing background have exceptional car control but I, I mean, to me, that seems like propaganda. It's not, it's not like car control is this exclusive thing. Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick and Joey Logano have exceptional car control. And if, if you can't see that, you don't know what car control is. And for, and for that matter, Corey LaJoy, Landon Castle and BJ McLeod have good car control, which again, speaks to how talented you have to be to have staying power in the NASCAR Cup Series. If you're going to filter the top, you're you're going to have some of these base things. It's not just found in dirt racing. Yes, Kyle Larson and Christopher Bell are incredible. Jeff Gordon changed the sport, and, and it all stemmed from their driving ability and hopping in one car and having it go fast and then hopping in another car and having it do the same. Not all dirt racers are built like that. We're seeing the elite guys. There have been plenty of dirt racers that have come in through K&N and trucks, and it was clear they weren't controlling a lot of their car, um, and 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 they didn't pan out. Uh, so I, I would say that talent is everywhere. You just have to turn over every rock to find it and work very hard to cultivate it. And the the reverse of that is you, you need to find a driver that's that's willing to put in the effort to be the best stock car racer possible. Kyle Larson, Chris Bell, all those guys I mentioned, uh, Tony Stewart, these these dirt guys have incredible work ethics. They worked really hard once they got into what's essentially a new genre of racing and they just happened to learn it quickly. And that's 
look, that's a testament to their ability, and we don't see that every day. I think you hit the nail on the head that it's the talent, not the discipline, that gives you success at the, at the, the top levels of NASCAR, and it's the adaptability. Uh, it's it's hard for everybody, no matter where you're coming up. It is difficult uh, on the highest top uh, echelon of the sport, and uh, it's the talent and your adaptability, I think, more than anything, rather than your background that gives success in this sport. So good question and good answer, David. Next up from Jeff Smith, with all the talk about restart importance this year and preferred or non-preferred lane, how does 2019 compare to prior years? Is 2019 drastically more volatile? David, uh, I'll let you interpret the word volatile however you want. Uh, are we seeing crazy, <laughs> crazier restarts or are the numbers crazier this year because of the enhanced importance on restarts? Uh, y- yes. And I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing your observation to it because I think that's what a lot of people are seeing. I wrote about this dynamic, uh, a few weeks ago for the athletic. The disparity between the two grooves at every track, whatever it was prior to this season is largely unchanged. What's different is that the total net gain for cars in the preferred groove and inside the first seven rows is smaller. And the net loss for cars in the non-preferred groove is greater. Now that sounds weird. I'm going to break this down into layman's Please terms. Please do. Here's what is happening. The cars that pitted and took four fresh tires are never typically near the front of the field. And that's always been the case. As the cars that stay out or take gas only or just two tires, what have you, they're lined up in the front. In years past, with more horsepower, those cars in the front would have more acceleration at their disposal, and the cars that didn't have fresh uh, rubber would lose ground. Uh, the, the cars out front could distance themselves in clean air from the rest of the pack for a little bit and sometimes a long time. Well, that is gone. Uh, with this new package... Those with new tires can catch those with old tires a lot quicker than they did in years past. And what our reduction in gains and increase in losses are telling us is that there are probably a lot of tire gamblers at the front of the field and it's cars from outside the top 14, presumably with fresh tires, breaking into the top 14 and taking those spots. We talked about this very early in the season, but with the unknowns of any new rules package, crew chiefs tend to stick with what they can control, and they don't concern themselves with what they can't control. And they can control strategy. Very early in the season, we saw crew chiefs shooting for track position while under caution. And since then, they've learned a lot. They've learned that there's less of a chance that they'll stick with that position. So in recent races, where it would have made sense in the past based on tire wear, we've seen less of those calls. And that 
is how restarts have been impacted. That is what you are seeing. You are seeing faster cars deeper in the field being able to catch some of those gamblers a lot quicker than you did in years past. At one point in the season, I think Chris Gale, Eric Jones's crew chief, told Nate Ryan, you know, is anyone watching these races when it comes to late race strategy or just strategy in general and staying out on those tires to maintain that track position? So uh, I, I like what you're, uh, I believe what you're saying in terms of adaptability and how things have kind of changed uh, through, you know, crew chiefs are noticing the changes this year and adapting to it as the season goes on. I think there's still that in intensity because, you know, there, there's a small window in terms of being able to gain positions right after that restart because people start talking about the air and how tough it gets to pass. So maybe aggressive level wise or behind the driver's seat, the guy gripping the wheel is trying to get a little more, a little quicker. Uh, I think that's variable still there, David. Could it be panic? Sure. There are a lot of drivers in the field that are vocal about saying how difficult it is for them to pass with this rules package. And that two lap window following restarts, what you're seeing, what you're watching happen, there's some, there's some drivers that are panicking and it shows. I mean, the, the restarts are pretty wild. And it's, uh, I mean, we, we saw it at Michigan. I mean, there's, liable to to be a crash uh just with all the jostling and i think it stands to reason that just within that two lap window anything can can occur if that's going to work where you are going to receive the bulk of your track position for the day uh yeah then that's that being the end product makes a lot of sense good stuff good stuff next one from joshua rutherford a couple of questions he writes if i may sure we'll let you do that um let's go first up he writes thoughts on future manufacturers entering at any level in nascar nissan hyundai honda that's his first question let's tackle that uh david i'll i'll chime in on this one bringing a new manufacturer into the sport. Uh, I'm going to parrot a lot of what Brad Keselowski has said because I believe him and he's very smart when it comes to this stuff. But he has said the most important thing, the biggest thing that could happen to NASCAR is bringing in another manufacturer. And for those listening out there, I would say think of every time you see a Toyota commercial. Think of every time you see a Toyota ad on, uh, you know, on television or on USA Today or a banner at the track or a tweet from TRD, or uh, just any piece of information you get from Toyota itself. Think of that, and then bring a whole new element of a new manufacturer bringing all of that with their own commercials, their own ads, their own uh, messages in USA Today, their own drivers, their own marketing campaigns. That is all exposure for the sport. So not even the competitive side. I'm just talking about sheer exposure. A new manufacturer brings all of that. And that is eyeballs on the sport of NASCAR. And that is so hugely important. And then you get to just the competitive side of it, the whole new brain power aspect. You're talking about new engineers, new thoughts, new technology coming from a manufacturer, kind of, I feel, upping everyone's game when you bring in more competition. Uh, anytime I think you can bring a, a new competitor, a new manufacturer, it, it's going to it's going to be a huge positive for the sport. And again, Brad Keselowski has said that. I believe him. Other drivers have, have said similar things. And, uh, you know, it's a big deal, David. Plus one for my end. Uh, I would welcome any new manufacturer into NASCAR. It's new money, which means jobs, which means talent is more often rewarded when it comes to drivers and crew chiefs and engineers and front office personnel and 
And that's the kind of sport that fans want to get behind. Uh, it'd be tremendous for driver development to not have one manufacturer dictating the proceedings, uh, throw a rock and you'll hit a Toyota racing development driver. But look, I mean, yeah, no, it's not, I mean, Toyota pretty much has the run of the grassroots divisions, uh, right now. I'd like to see that stranglehold busted. I'm with you. There is no downside here. Perfect. Let's bring them in. Bring them in. Uh, Volkswagen was damn near close. Uh, if you believe, uh, <laughs> people who know a few years ago just didn't pan out. Maybe they'll come back. We'll see. Uh, next, the other question that Joshua Rutherford had is about Austin Sindrick, uh, two time winner now over there. Two weeks in a row, he's won in the Xfinity series. But any thoughts on the future of Penske and Austin Sindrick for 2020? Uh, presumably talking about bringing him up to cup. Does Roger Penske go to four cup teams? Is there an odd man out? David, I'll let you go first on this one. What do you think? If Austin Sendrick was not in Penske's future plans, he would not be in Penske's Xfinity Series ride right now. Logic would insist that he's the heir to Paul Menard's ride at the Wood Brothers uh, team, which is a team housed in the Penske shop and more or less a Penske car. Uh, but you never really know. Cindric has also been cross-trained unlike any driver that we've ever seen. He could easily assimilate to IndyCar or Australian V8 supercars just based on the eclectic nature of his development path. He could probably take whatever path he desires. But from the sounds of it, he wants to walk the NASCAR path. The question was specifically about 2020, and if the plan was to maybe take uh, the Paul Menard 21 eventually, Paul Menard has said he has a contract for next year and fully expect him back. So maybe not 2020 for Austin Sindrick. Uh, I don't think that would be a bad thing. Look, he's coming into his own right now, learning how to win races. Another year in Xfinity, learning how to win and contend for a championship. Would not hurt him. I looked up the stats, David. I believe he's seventh in peer in the Xfinity series this year. He's got some spotty passing numbers. He's good on some tracks, bad in others. Uh, really good on some restarts, bad on others. <laughs> um, uh, you know, di the different categories of restarts. Uh, again, if, if a kid like Christopher Bell is going to be made to wait before he comes up to, uh, the cup series, I, I think, you know, giving Austin another season in, uh, the Xfinity series is not going to hurt his abilities nor potential when he finally does make the jump. Agreed. And he's only 20 years old. So he he would be 21 uh, in the 2020 season. Uh, no, there there's no rush to bring him up. And plus, hey, you know what? That's that's a really fast car. Another year in the 22 Xfinity car could net him a championship. I mean, that that could be a really bountiful year for him, both in terms of on track success and what he would be able to learn. Good stuff. Good questions from Joshua Rutherford. All right, next up from Ryan Larkin. Have you guys covered Greg Galding recently? And if not, will you? Feels like he's been killing it this season, and I'm curious what the stats say. Uh, this turned out to be, for me anyway, a very cool and eye-opening question because, David, when you look at the stats, Greg Galding is da pretty damn good. He is 10th in peer in the 18th fastest car, and having the 18th fastest car overall in central speed, David, he only has four finishes worse than 18th. That tells me he is vastly outperforming his equipment. He has a better uh, red zone finishing average than Ross Chastain when Ross Chastain's in the number four car, uh, better than Brandon Jones, who drives for Joe Gibbs Racing, 
better than Riley Herbst, who also drives for Joe Gibbs Racing, and other drivers like Jeremy Clements, Shane Lee, and Brandon Brown. Uh, aside from the JGR cars, his green light racing entry is faster than all of those other entries uh, of the drivers that I just mentioned. So his team isn't slow, but as you said, he is scoring finishes commensurate with the car's speed, which was not always the case for him. He was earlier in his career fast-tracked by his family from the grassroots level to the Cup Series in an expedited fashion similar to Joey Logano. The difference was that Logano was exceptional for his age and Galding was typical of his age. And when Galding didn't stick somewhere and develop, the holes that were always in his driving repertoire were never improved upon. So what we're seeing this season is... Uh, sort of, sort of a, a second chance to do that. Kind of getting just back to basics. He has the second least efficient surplus passing value. Uh, Josh Balicki has the worst. So it seems as if Galding is relying heavily on his car's speed for finishes and takes advantage of closed quarter races like Talladega and Daytona to score good finishes. Uh, that's where he's at. But the good news for him and any of his fans, is that he's only 21, which seems impossible. Yeah, we've known, we've known him for a long time. Yeah, he's, the he's been in our consciousness for, for a while. And he's now finally slowing down long enough to to build, to develop. And look, come to find out, he does have a little bit of game. And now he just needs more polish. You know, I, I looked back at a couple of other young drivers just as a comparison. and. Look, Chase Elliott was fast-tracked to the Cup Series. He was a rookie at a relatively young age. But he also spent two seasons at the Xfinity Series level. He won the championship in his rookie year and then returned to the Xfinity Series for another year. So even even he who he he was he was that good had he left Xfinity after one year, no one would have thought it weird but he decided to stay. Uh, even, even he stuck around just to hone his skills a little bit. And Chase Elliott is very good. Um, so where Gray Galding aired originally, he's making up for now. And what we're seeing is a driver that's probably just sitting back and, and allowing uh, himself to learn, uh, which is cool to see. Yeah, great. And again, as you said, he's 20, 21 years old. Um, I mean, so often in this sport, we, we consider someone washed up if they're not winning, you know, 10 races and cup in the championship by 19, it seems. You know what I mean? Like we don't give anyone time to breathe. So the, the fact that we're seeing the talent come around, it's good. And great question from, uh, Ryan Larkin and kudos to Greg Galding on a, on a good season so far. No DNFs. Worst finish of the year was the first race out. So he's only improved from there. And, uh, yeah, uh, that was an eye opening question. So I appreciate our listeners uh, submitting something like that and pointing it out. That's what we'd like to hear. We'll see what he can do in Bristol, which leads us to. Our Bristol preview for the weekend, David. Um, the cup cars, again, we get closer and closer to the playoffs. Uh, second time around, this is going to be the night race, of course, over in Bristol. But the second time we've been there this season. David, what did we learn the first time there in the cup race in terms of who's fastest, the restarts, what we can expect? I, I think there won't be any surprises here. But uh, what did we learn the first time around? 
Well, the fastest car belonged to Joey Logano. And beyond him, Ryan Blaney, Kyle Busch, and Kevin Harvick were also, unsurprisingly, very fast. Kyle Busch has the fastest car on short tracks this year, just a three-race sample uh, to this point, but no drivers outside the usual suspects there. When we think Bristol nowadays, we think about the restarts, where the outside groove is the preferred groove. In the spring race, it's occupants uh, retain position 92% of the time. It's close to a guarantee as you'll find in NASCAR right now, the non-preferred groove retained 34% of the time. It's a huge disparity. Now, it's not the biggest. I mean, I try to keep informal track of these every time we do them, and Bristol seems to be maybe the biggest disparity, the most significant advantage, at least, being on the outside groove on a restart in all of NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and Michigan is slowly catching it, so we're, we're kind of getting hit with a double whammy uh, two weeks in a row, the restarts. But uh, I, I will say this. It's important to know that this dynamic impacts restarters of all types, good and bad, in pretty much the same way. The preferred groove, the outside groove, is so strong that it makes bad restarters look good. Conversely, in order to make the non-preferred groove work, you're going to have to be elite. A few weeks ago, I wrote about restarts and mentioned Kyle Busch's single best restart of 2019. I chose the late race restart at Bristol, during which he was in the preferred groove on the front row, lined up next to his brother, Kurt. And this was a legitimate showdown from a Bristol restart because it was Kurt. If it were anyone else, a restarter less talented, that probably wouldn't have been the case. It would have been an easy victory for Kyle. In the end, though, the outside line prevailed. That's where the better acceleration was, and it's tough for any driver, much less a good restarter like Kurt Busch, to go against the grain of that kind of disparity. Interesting stuff. Now, next up is um, what we always do, what we have been doing now that we're getting closer to the playoffs, uh, the bubble, the the playoff line, the cutoff is only getting tighter. It got a little crazy in Michigan when Clint, when Clint Boyer and the 48 of Jimmy Johnson had some issues that suddenly vaulted uh, Ryan Newman far into the playoff right now. So in terms of these drivers that are on the playoff, we always like to pick who's best suited for the upcoming race in Bristol. And one thing I want to point out, David, is in the spring race, Clint Boyer, Daniel Suarez, Ryan Newman, and Jimmy Johnson, the four drivers, I mean, a lot of people are focusing on, obviously, for good reason, that last playoff spot, they finished 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th. So right there next to each other. Whoa. Yeah, a little odd. Uh, just the way it worked out and now the way that they're all fighting for the kind of the same real estate. So when we look at Bristol, I'll let you go first. Of those teams still fighting for a playoff spot, who is best suited for the race on Saturday night? Clint Boyer crashed out last weekend in Michigan, and he said, we have some things to work out. We have some time. We have some good racetracks for us, including Bristol coming up. Uh, Bristol is, uh, is a good spot if you're Clint Boyer only because the speed of his Stuart Haas car on short tracks 
is a pretty big advantage for him. His car ranks sixth in central speed this season on short tracks. And his average speed ranking uh, is quite a bit distanced away from Daniel Suarez and Jimmy Johnson and Ryan Newman. But that's not all. Boyer has excelled this season in the more chaotic races. He is averaging a 13.3 place finish in events with seven or more restarts, while in races with less than seven restarts, his average result is 20.9. I will point out that the last time a Bristol race featured less than seven restarts came in 2012. I think Clint Boyer is going to be very happy (laughs) with the sight of every caution flag that he sees Saturday night. Uh, I, I think he is in a good position to do something well, uh, but he's going to have to run a clean race. We've seen that team have some self-inflicted wounds. They cannot get in their own way. Good stuff. I'm going to pick one of someone not in those four that I mentioned. David, I apologize. I'm thinking more with my heart here than that, my head. But I had a good sit-down interview. It was on race day last week with Matt DiBenedetto. Uh, it was very truthful, you know, very truthful about where he stands, what he's thinking, how tough and unfair this business can be when he's running better than he ever has in his career. And it really kind of means nothing for him, right, for his future in terms of keeping a job where he is. Uh, it's unfortunate. But if there's going to be one track where a, a fast car or, or a car with the speed that uh, the 95 has shown at times this year, and it's one of Matt DiBenedetto's favorite tracks. I'm talking about Bristol. I think statistically it's his best track in terms of average finish. If there were ever a place to get it done in the few remaining races uh, that are out there to grab a win and surprise everybody, I would think it would be Bristol. So I'm just going to go with that because uh, I'm on a Matt DiBenedetto Matt Benedetto kick right now. Uh, the stats, the speed, nothing like Clint Boyer has at the moment, but I'm still going with him. Sorry, David. That would be quite the turn of events. It would, uh, it would. I like, you know, like, you know, I like drama and chaos. So this would be, it not only would it be chaos in the playoff, it would only accelerate the whole, uh, how are you going to get rid of this guy sort of conversation. And I, I just like the chaos of it all. <laughs> Bring it. I, I'm I'm fully with you on that. There you go. So we'll see what Clint Boyer and Matt DiBenedetto can do, both still trying to make the playoff for 2019. Uh, and, of course, what we always do with our Bristol preview, what do we want to see happen? David, I, I don't want to pat myself on the back again, but remember in Michigan I said I wanted to see a, a bevy of drivers lead a certain amount of laps. We saw that. We saw many drivers, uh, or a handful, four, I think it was four drivers, lead far more than 30 laps, and it made for a good race. And that's all I ever ask for is a good race with some stories to tell, comers and goers. I think we saw that in Michigan. So let's apply it to Bristol. What do you want to see in Bristol on Saturday night, the night race? Last year, Kurt Busch delivered the restart of the year, and it was sensational, uh, just incredible the kind of highlight the most hardened purist of uh, of auto racing could get behind so i want to see what's next uh too often i feel the highlights of bristol are of a driver throwing his helmet and i'm sorry i get that it's entertaining but that's not actually a racing highlight give me a racing highlight give me a reason to believe Alan, uh, despite this disparity on restarts, this is still a very racy track. I think it's the short track that delivers 
action most often. So I'd like to see a highlight come of that for the right reasons. I like that. Like the racing and not the helmet throwing. That's a good one. Uh, two things for me. I would like to see a racy bottom groove. I think we, we can expect the PJ one again. We, if you missed last week's episode, go back and listen to it. David talked about the effects, some minimal of about PJ one, at least for the restarts. Maybe it can help the racing a little bit. So I want to see an effective second groove and. I'm Captain Chaos. I want to see a new winner. <laughs> Maybe Jimmy Johnson comes out of nowhere. Clint Boyer uses all that speed that you talked about, gets the win. Matt D surprises everybody. Ricky Stenhouse in that same conversation is someone who has performed really well at Bristol lately. Uh, maybe shock the world and really shake up the playoff system, but I would love to see a new winner. There's nothing, nothing better than a little drama. So that's what I'm going for. Is that all right? I think that's perfectly fine. <laughs> Let's see what happens Saturday night. Always one of the, the the races we look forward to, the Bristol night race. And before we go, we have our latest installment, the latest uh, report from the Positive Regression Scouting Network. David, who do we got? Robert Cole is scouting 17-year-old Chandler Smith of Talking Rock, Georgia. Robert writes, Chandler's biggest test this year came in the ARCA Series race at Pocono. He looked fast in his first Speedway effort qualified third, but a near spin on lap one relegated him to eighth place, where he would finish after a nightmarish pit stop ended any chance for a rebound. Uh, though the finish doesn't show it, his passing ability was top-notch and should bode well for the 17-year-old when he eventually transitions to a full-time schedule. The short track whiz can run up front on the big tracks, too, which should send chills through his competition. Speaking of short tracks, Smith will make his third truck series start at the half-mile Bristol Motor Speedway, driving KBM's 51 truck. His three ARCA starts at half-mile ovals this year have yielded finishes of fourth, first, and first. Uh, Alan, Robert mentioned passing ability, and Chandler Smith, through two truck series races, has a surplus passing value of plus 10 point. 84%. He is not messing around. Uh, I know the playoffs take center stage this weekend in Bristol with the truck series, but it seems like you always have a good time when Chandler Smith uh, heads your way. Do you, do you think he can steal the show? Dude, dude, <laughs> dude, dude. I, I think Chandler, the dude Smith, uh, you know, I just said, I like chaos. Uh, the, the trucks field is, is packed. You know, Parker Kligerman's in there. Chandler Smith is in there. John Hunter Nemechek is in there for Thursday's race at Bristol, which is also the playoff opener. Uh, so there could be some chaos there where we have a winner who is not a regular. Uh, John Hunter Nemechek damn near won the thing last year and, and lost it right at the end, and he could come in and kind of moonlight and take the win. But sure, Chandler Smith paired with Rudy Fugel in that 51. We know what the 51 is capable of. Um, he probably should have won Iowa. Chandler Smith should have had, had a radio issue, then a pit road uh, penalty, what you might expect out of young drivers, but uh, capable, absolutely. So uh, I think our Positive Regression Scouting Network scout will have a lot to talk about uh, after this weekend, especially after Thursday's race at Bristol. Should be pretty cool. Oh, I think so too. And if you want to join the Positive Regression Scouting Network, David, tell them how, because uh, we want to hear about up-and-coming drivers, even ones we may not know about already. I always stress every week, David, if you are a local racing fan and you go to a track every weekend, 
Tell us about someone we should know about. You, you're a smart listener. You're a smart racing fan if you're listening to this podcast. We will trust your eyes and what you're seeing out there. If there's someone we should know about, tell us about them. David, how can they do it? They can do it by going to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com and signing up. They can they can pick their driver or they can have us select a driver for them. And I promise you, we will not deliver you a lemon. Uh, you can trust <laughs> our judgment on that as well. But it is good fun. As you can tell, we enjoy uh, reading these pieces at the end of every podcast. So sign up. We want our scouting network to uh, to grow and the information to flow. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good episode two. Episode 30 of Positive Regression. And don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you get your podcasts, we are available. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff really does help a podcast like this gain some visibility. Tell a friend, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Uh, it takes a little bit of time. Just tell a friend and, and share everything you learn with them because uh, a smarter fan base is a better fan base and the, the responses we're getting it's pretty awesome your help in spreading the word is so appreciated if you have questions you know we will answer them we just did it in this whole episode so we want to answer them reach out to us on twitter at posregpod p-o-s-r-e-g-p-o-d david what are you working on Earlier this week on The Athletic, I glanced at some recent trends following the Michigan race, and uh, I think it's proved pretty popular. I've received two messages from Cup Series crew chiefs about that uh, article. I can't go into that, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that teaser. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's made some people think a little bit. Uh, and near and dear to your heart, Alan, uh, later this week on The Athletic, Matt Benedetto, not not just his season to date. I also will dip a little bit into his career as well. It, it's it has been a star-crossed career in its entirety. That then an interview for Fox Sports, uh, I think, was fantastic. Um, but I want to add some analysis to this crossroads where he currently finds himself. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. And, and look, I, I don't want to promote myself too much, but only because Matt Benedetto was so revealing and truthful and honest and was able to share really what he's thinking about the situation. And again, how unfair this business can be. He really opened up. So check out my Twitter feed or Facebook or stuff uh, to find that interview. Uh, it's posted there. It, it was a good time. And I, I appreciate him talking to us. Uh, other than that, again, if you are a subscriber, thank you very much. You're listening to this on Thursday. Uh, watch Bristol tonight. It is the beginning of the Truck Series playoff. Uh, the winner, you know, if they're a regular in the playoff, that means they automatically go on to the next round. It should be awesome. It is on tonight, FS1. And uh, just make sure you watch uh, all the NASCAR and come back and watch Race Hub the following Monday. That's what I'm working on this weekend. So, uh, this has been episode 30 of Positive Regression. Thank you so much for listening. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. 
And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.